Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. One thing about this uh, um, quarantine uh, season here is that the last time we did one of these is always last week because we yeah. don't have anything else to do. <laughs> so nothing's getting in the way of our schedule, you know? Yeah, we're not, we're not going anywhere. I'm not going to any film festivals or nothing. Yeah, I'm not going to, we're not going to Comic-Con. Yeah. Uh, Still sad about that, but uh, I'll get over it, I guess. It's for the best. But um, I've been watching uh, a bunch of stuff, um, a bunch of stuff to, uh, th- that I've either reviewed or will be reviewing on the website. But also, I feel like this is the first week since the quarantine began that I really got to watch a bunch of stuff that I just wanted to watch. It was just like sure. on my to see list that I'm watching for myself. And so I have some fun stuff yeah. in here, uh, but I'm starting with, uh, so on the last movie journal, I talked about two films, both directed by Claude Sade, Sade, Sote, I think, uh, starring Romy Schneider. And this was in the film movement classics had restored three Romy, uh, French Romy Schneider vehicles from the, from the 1970s. Uh, so the third one I watched, which was not directed by Claude Sote, was directed by a uh, Polish director, actually, Andrzej Zulawski, uh, is called, I'm going to try from trying to just reach back to last October when I was in Paris, I'm going to try and say the name of this movie, L'Importance d'Amé. Okay. Which roughly means uh, the important thing is to love, mm. uh, which when you watch the movie is actually kind of a tongue in cheek title. It's not really a love story in a very romantic way. Um, uh, Romy Schneider plays a sort of formerly respectable actress who is now making um, the kind of 70s like euro trash erotica movies that uh uh are now i think looked upon quite fondly but was seen as at the time uh, uh a fallen grace for her character but there's a uh, uh a paparazzo who um becomes obsessed with her and uh basically uh, uses his underworld connections to borrow a bunch of money from gangsters to finance a play that she can star in he wants to be the the person who's going to bring her back to respectability um but his love for her is not healthy and not generally not wanted um you know for a movie called the important thing is to love uh the one of romy snyder's big scenes is her shouting over and over again i love you means nothing i love you means nothing <laughs> um but uh the movie is uh, of the three Romy schneider movies that i watch i think this is my favorite even though it's also the most cynical uh, movie because it's the most cynical i don't know um it, it's it definitely has an unfavorable look at the sort of cd world like art house world like the, the they're all bohemian actors and painters and photographers and all of their lives are just discarded depraved orgies all the time it has kind of a i would say a culturally conservative view of what the artiste lifestyle is actually like which is not something that i agree with but like those culturally conservative slasher movies in which people who 
you know, the people who aren't virgins get, uh, you know, stabbed through the heart. They're fun to watch. And then <laughs> this one is very much the same thing. It's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's out there. Um, it's, it's the most uh, over the course of these three Romy Schneider movies that I watched, the three of the, her, her role in each of them gets bigger. And this is definitely the, the biggest and most complex, uh, role for her. And I forgot, oh, I forgot to mention one thing that really drives home this the best of the three and being uh, uh, sometimes very over the top is the the actor who gets cast as the lead in the play that she's in is played by Klaus Kinski and he's oh my. just Klaus Kinskiing all <laughs> yeah. over the place um, uh, it's uh, uh, it's fantastic I'm trying to remember what he there aren't many actors whose names could be used as like a verb and <laughs> yeah. I, he's one of them he's one of them yeah and he like uh, he gets into a confrontation at a restaurant where he uh, refers to himself as a respectable homosexual or something like that. <laughs> it's it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. So yeah, l'important l'importance de me. And the thing is, another thing since last week's episode, film move, which we knew was coming. Whenever film movement plus, sorry, whenever film movement classics does one of these restorations, which they release in theaters or in this case in virtual cinemas, it means they're also going to be putting sure. it out on Blu-ray. So they did actually announce the Blu-ray. Uh, release of of the three movies. One, the two Claude Cité films are going to be one disc, and then uh, L'Important de May. I'm going to fuck that up again. Uh, is going to be its own disc, and then keeping in the film movement classics mode, I watched the movie that had been on my to see list forever. This is just like a really happy accident that they did a new uh, restoration. It's playing virtual cinemas. I'm assuming the restoration will get a Blu-ray release. But uh, Nanny Moretti's 1993 sort of semi-documentary Caro Diario, which, again, I, I didn't mean to, to lump these together. I just did it chronologically. But the two movies that are their titles are not translated. Uh, but Caro Diario just means Dear Diary. Yeah. Um, and I, I knew of this movie because I'd seen other uh, uh other Nanny Moretti stuff. I know I reviewed, we have a Pope for the, uh, for battleship retention way back in 2011 or 2012. Um, and I knew this was kind of his most celebrated work. He had won best director and in 1994, I think for it. Um, and, uh, I had, uh, even by my, uh, my high expectations for this movie, I they got blown out of the water. This movie is so much fun and so great. It's, um, like i said it's it's sort of semi it's it's semi-documentary it's a memoir type thing it's called dear diary for a reason and it's three chapters that aren't really related to one another so in the first chapter it's him sort of vespaing again (laughs) using non-verbs as verbs but writing his vespa around rome in the summer months which uh coincidentally came up twice uh in uh, in movies i'll talk about in this journal during the summer especially during august rome is like kind of empty because italians like all go on vacation at the same time so it's like him riding his vespa through like these mostly empty streets and filling up the time with uh um uh uh he, he goes to the movies he goes to see henry portrait of a serial killer and hates it and has this sort of fantasy of uh tormenting the critic who wrote a positive review of it by reading the critic his own review as he's trying to fall asleep um, uh but he and he talks about how much he loves flash dance and how flash dance is uh the <laughs> like so i feel like nanny Marty is this guy who just like is kind of like 
hey, why can't we all just have a good time all the time? But yeah. just under that is like he's really annoyed by everyone all the time, and like he's yeah. so he, there's a lot of bitterness to him. But it comes across almost like he comes across almost like a silent film comedian's persona, especially in this first segment when, like, like I said, he's riding his Vespa around. So Vespa around, so he has a helmet on, but he never takes the helmet off. So even in scenes <laughs> where he's not on the Vespa, he's still wearing the helmet, and it has that sort of implacability. Seems like a very silent film comedian yeah, uh, yeah. type of thing. And there's a great scene where Jennifer Beals and her then husband Alexander Rockwell, the director of In the Soup, um, uh, and and some other things, uh, play themselves. Uh, he sort of is riding his Vespa around and sees Jennifer Beals and just runs up to her and is like, "Are you Jennifer Beals from Flashdance?" And she, uh, in, a, in a very like uh, endearing and polite way, basically tells him he's an idiot. <laughs> Um, so that's and that's just the first the second segment is uh he is trying to work on an upcoming film so he decides to go off to one of the islands uh off the coast of italy but every island he goes to is like so crowded with tourists that he can't find uh peace so it's like this whole segment him and his his buddy who's uh like a uh uh, I don't know, uh, academic, uh, just sort of island hopping and trying to find some peace and quiet. And then the third segment is uh, uh, apparently based on something that actually happened to him, um, which is that he spent a year going to different doctors and having different tests done and stuff to find out what this mysterious ailment he had uh, was. And so it's uh, in some ways it's the heaviest of the three, but it never gets too heavy, but it's, it's him, uh, this sort of tour of uh, Italy's, um, I don't know, healthcare system. Uh, but all of it is just him commenting kind of uh, uh, a little bit churlishly, but mostly good-naturedly uh, on everything that's happened and being uh, annoyed by things. And there's some just hilariously funny uh, bits. Which the, uh, uh, speaking of the um, isolation of these islands, his academic friend claims to have not watched um television in like 15 years and then on the ferry to another island there's nothing else to do and there's a tv playing a soap opera and over the course of this segment he becomes this character becomes addicted to soap operas <laughs> um, to the point where when they finally find an island remote enough he flees the island because they can't television they don't have electricity so he can't watch uh, television so there's funny stuff there's a great like again speaking of the silent comedian thing there's a great part of nanny moretti just like he's on one of these islands he's walked into a little like bakery sandwich shop order sandwich and while he's waiting he's watching the television and they're showing an old movie that has like a musical number and he just like dances like wordlessly dance in the sandwich shop while he's waiting for his sandwich to be ready the movie is so fun um, it sounds delightful yeah it, it's a ton of fun and you can and these virtual cinema things are really great like the film the way it works with film movement is that you get like the film movement plus app on your roku or whatever device you use um and when you rent the movie, you select a participating like art house or independent theater and half of your rental fee goes to them. Mm. So, um, so you can, if you're like here and we're in Los Angeles, we can select the American cinema cinematech for, you could rent Caro Diario, um, and select the American cinematech and half of your rental fee goes to the American cinematech. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah. And there's a bunch of movies that are a bunch of places that are doing things like this. Um, and that's one I would definitely recommend if you wanted to try out the virtual cinema thing. Caro Diario. All right. So, uh, this is the only rewatch that I have. And, and my, my policy these days is to not mention a rewatch unless I have something 
yeah. new to say about it, or at least new for me. Yeah. And uh, so this is a film I've seen many times, but it's been a while since I last saw it. And it is uh, a league of their own. Uh, there's a film. Oh yeah. That, I rewatched I s- this. Um, when did we do Penny Marshall? Was that earlier this year? Or was that late last year? Uh, I don't remember. I think of it as fairly recently, but you know, that could have been two years. Time doesn't ago. mean uh, yeah, yeah. Time doesn't mean anything anymore, but yeah, I, I rewatched it uh, in preparation for that. So I've seen it within the last year. And yeah. And I did not rewatch it for that. Cause I had seen it enough to really remember it. Um, and so it's not as though there was anything in it that I had forgotten. It's more that it just got me thinking about some, like some, some larger things as far as filmmaking that it was made in the early nineties, I think 91, 92. And at a time when movies like a league of their own, it's, it's something that a, a younger audience could enjoy, but it's a film that's mostly for grownups. It's, it's just a, this, I keep, I keep wanting to say big, but it's not big, but it's like, it's, it's just a big American mainstream grown-up film. Mm-hmm. And as I, wa- as I watch it, like it just, and maybe because it's about baseball, I think of it as being very American, but like, it's not tremendously subtle. Uh, the, the char- a lot of the supporting characters are character types more than anything else. Uh, but at its core, it still does have some really strong characters and it's, at it, it's really about this relationship between these two sisters. Uh, but there are all these other things going on as well. And the relationship between the two sisters, it's not like that's a small subplot that you have to like root around to find. No, it's right there. It's front and center. It is, it's, and yet that is not a, a problem with the movie. You yeah. know, um, I remember uh, someone once described me as uh, someone that like that they they saw see me as something of an authority on American film, which undoubtedly me being me, I took as an insult um, <laughs> because that's who I am. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know what? As time has gone on, um, I've come to really. It's I don't get me wrong. I still will take it as an insult, but. I do still think in terms of like, well, American cinema doesn't necessarily have to mean blockbusters or what a lot of other people usually mean and what people will often like film people will often say in a derisive way, but like they are films that will sometimes have big ideas and they're expressed in, in a, in a big way and done in a way that is just like, you know, good solid filmmaking, you know, and it's not really, there's nothing really experimental in there. And don't get me wrong. There are plenty of, there are plenty of American films that are more independent minded and do have, and we'll be, I'll be talking about one later. They do have uh, a little bit more of a subtlety to them, but uh, watching a league of their own, like I found myself thinking back to stuff like from that same era of the, like a few years on either side, like uh you know rain man or something like i'm not i didn't mean to pick another uh another best picture winner but something like driving miss daisy these movies are not necessarily going to be tremendously challenging but they will definitely be engaging they usually have really good writing 
really good performances. They're usually story driven for story and character driven first. And then the style is there to, or, or the form is there to sort of prop that up while still being perfectly fine on its own. Uh, and I don't know, just a league of their own just got me thinking about like, are there examples of that now? And I you, think that fewer, I, think there, I think there are fewer. Yes. Um, and I also, uh, and I do think that like in our, in, in our circles, you know, you get something like, uh, well, I got, got uh, another best picture winner, which is green book. Um, which I mentioned driving Miss Daisy. It's, re- it's reminiscent of, of mm-hmm. that. And this is an instance where it's like, I, I do wonder if maybe for film critics, this style of filmmaking, again, big ideas done in a big way without really delving into certain issues in the most uh, insightful way. I, I do wonder if there are fewer of them because on one hand, you have an audience that's, that's much more interested in spectacle. And I think you have a, a critic base that has less and less patience for that approach. Um, I don't know. Another movie offhand that I think of is Hacksaw Ridge, which granted it's a war movie, and, oh. but it's rated R and it's like, it's big ideas. It's not, pl- it's not going to be something like a platoon or something like that. It's still, it's, it's that Mel Gibson style of filmmaking, which is like every it's, everything's on its sleeve. You know, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to dig real deep um, because there's not going to be much there. And so, uh, so it's weird. A league of their own just got me thinking about, this style of, of filmmaking that is a perfectly legitimate way of making a movie. Um, and it can be tremendously entertaining and very engaging. It, it might not be that intellectually or thematically deep, but that doesn't mean it's not worth watching. And I do find myself wishing that there were more of them. Uh, it's uh, interesting. I was just talking with another uh, friend of mine um, yesterday um, about, uh, well, he was talking about the high note, which I haven't seen, um, but the new movie that uh, was supposed to be in theaters and now has gone straight to, to streaming. But I talked about, uh, was it last year or two years ago, there was the art of racing in the rain and how like these movies now, they, they come from what would have been big studio movies. Like now, like art of racing in the rain. I can't remember if that was Fox. It might've been Fox searchlight. Uh, the high note is focus, not it, not universal. Like yeah. they're geared at a smaller audience, even though, they feel very like the art of racing in the rain, which I liked um, felt very nice to me. It felt like the kind of movie that would come out in, in the nineties because it's yeah. not its target audience is not 12 or 13 year old boys, which is yeah. what most of uh, the big studio movies are, are now, but it's also not really uh, an awards picture either. I think that's, you mentioned yeah. green book. Like I think now when studios do make these kind of sort of um, uh, populist, but not, franchise tentpole or youth driven films they sort of uh overblow them by making them by by putting the sheen of prestige on them and then putting them at the at the end of the year like yeah why don't we have more more uh i don't know june july releases of movies like i'm not sure when that came out but um those i you're you're definitely seeing my tune because those are the kind of movies that i increasingly miss i feel like yeah my tastes as i get older are either like on the more esoteric more art house more uh fringy or they're this sort of like not not uh condescending uh mainstream uh filmmaking 
I mean, you know, it's when you when you look into the Oscars, like that's when you really that's when it really becomes interesting to see uh, the where like movies that are are Oscar they're not Oscar bait, but they are embraced by the Oscars, and they also happen to do to have done really well at the box office. Movies like Terms of Endearment. Oh yeah, and Kramer versus Kramer. These movies made Kramer versus Kramer was the number one movie that year. Yeah, yeah. And it's, Terms of Endearment was like in the top five. I mean, and and it's those are movies that are they're not necessarily art house movies. They're totally mainstream, yeah. um, and I don't think they're necessarily made with the Oscars in mind. Uh, they were just like, oh, this is a movie for grownups. Yeah. And then that, and that's it. That's what we're doing. And it attracts big talent. And the, and then yes, the Oscars do, do like uh, embrace that movie. And yeah, it's a shame. Like if, if the, if you have like sort of a mid or even a lower budget mainstream film, the, the, the studio is like, Oh, okay, well we can, this will be our prestige picture. Whereas it used to be the mainstream picture. Yeah. And now, but now that audience is watching, amazon originals or they're yeah. watching prestige tv now uh, yeah unfortunately yeah. uh all I talked right too long sorry about that that's okay uh speaking of streaming services uh hbo max debuted yesterday um and with it the new kirby dick amy zeering uh documentary on the record which i watched um mostly to sort of just complete the trilogy because i'd seen uh the invisible war and i'd seen the hunting ground which are uh those are both uh credited to Kirby Dick with Amy Zeering as a producer this is the first one of these uh, sexual harassment documentaries that Amy Zeering has been a co-director credited as a co-director on. I always wonder how that works. You know, yeah. like they clearly have worked hand in hand on these movies for a decade now, but I wonder why uh, this one uh, is a shared director credit or, or really I wonder why the other ones weren't. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, where so Invisible Invisible War was about um, a culture of sexual harassment and, and, and rape and cover up in the military. Hunting Ground was the same thing in college campuses, and uh, on the record, superficially, is about the same thing in the recording industry. But it becomes more—it's more specifically about the hip hop world. And then it's more specifically, uh, it's the first one of these that's like focused on essentially one uh, abuser, uh, which is Russell Simmons, the the oh. uh, the former head of uh, and founder of Def Jam Recordings, um, who has had, uh, I think, by this point, um, almost twenty different women have come forward. Uh, at least like four of them have alleged actual rape, uh, uh, not just sexual harassment. Um, some of those women are, are interviewed uh, in this movie. And then what, further beyond that, what I realized on the record is really about, because it seemed like uh, the odd man, uh, odd man out, because these other two are about an, uh, sexual harassment within a sort of subculture military sure. or, or or, or colleges and this one seemed more more specific but then you realize what it's really about is the very the the, the specific difficulties of in even in the me too era being a black woman whose abuser is a black man sure because um for a lot of different reasons but a lot of it is feeling like coming forward is 
the right thing to do, but it also is harmful to your community in a way. Right. When you've got a justice, a justice system, you've got a culture that has are, has depicted black men as sexually predatory since the time of slavery. Yeah. And you've got a, a justice system that is, um, has proven itself to be, uh, disproportionately unfair to, to black men suddenly feeling like now I'm a part of that yeah. is, is an extra, uh, difficulty. And, uh, that's a, it's a really interesting, uh, look at the movie. I'm glad I missed the whole controversy about this movie premiering at Sundance. I don't know if you, uh, uh, know about this, but instead of, instead of HBO max, it was originally supposed to uh, be on Apple, Apple plus whatever the, oh. whatever the Apple's version is. Yeah. Um, but shortly before Sundance, Oprah Winfrey pulled out as a producer and she had the Apple deal with her. So suddenly the movie was without uh, um, backing. Her argument was that she felt that Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering were rushing the movie to get it ready for Sundance and that it wasn't ready yet. But there are implications that she basically in a weird meta way, like was behaving a lot of like, or, or, ha or having the same thoughts as a lot of these women were that she was coming under attack as yeah. she has in the past because, because of how she's talked about like hip hop music in general, uh, right. people like 50, people like 50 cent have in the past accused Oprah Winfrey of being unfair towards black male celebrities. And so there are, are there are a lot of rumors that it was really, the, she was pressured to take her name off of this. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I didn't know all that, but the way that it sort of dovetails with the, what the movie is actually about is really, uh, really fascinating. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I would say that it's um, the movie itself is distinctive enough to, to warrant signing up for yeah. HBO max. But if like me, if you're already an HBO now subscriber and, which means you automatically have HBO max. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. It's not obviously like all of these movies, it's a heavy watch. And this one is becomes especially heavy because for the first 20 minutes, it's about like hip hop in the late eighties and early nineties. And it's like this burgeoning scene yeah. and like, Oh man, this is so much fun. There's these parties and look at all this new creativity that's happening. And there's, you know, people making, you know, uh, becoming cultural icons from poverty. Yeah. And it's like, wow, what a great scene. And <laughs> you almost forget like, Oh shit. The other shoe is about to drop. Right. Um, and then <laughs> next up for me is something that couldn't be more different. Uh, more of a, a lighthearted movie that I had not seen came out when we were kids. Okay. I had not seen it in my memory. I had not seen it because it was rated R and I wasn't allowed, but it is sure. PG 13. But I also understand why I thought it was rated R because okay. it's, it's a pretty dark comedy, but it's also a pretty broad campy comedy. And that's Robert Zemeckis's death becomes her. Uh, oh Yeah. Yeah, have you seen I, it? I, I saw it when uh, on video when we were uh, younger, and I think I think I was aware. I was I was keenly aware of what's PG thirteen and what is R. Uh, like okay. when I was a kid, I, I very much was aware of that because my parents were very much don't see anything rated R, and understandable. I'm young. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if something if something that I thought was going to be rated R turned out to be PG PG thirteen, oh. Yeah, that was like, and, and Death Becomes Her was an example of that. It's a film that I thought was going to be rated R. And then when I saw that it wasn't, oh, yeah, I hit I mean, my parents really hard on that. It still feels like, I don't know, I don't want to be a prude or a scold. It still feels like it should be rated R because it's like, it's, it's such a dark comedy and it like is. has some really disturbing 
multiple death scenes because the characters die multiple times yeah. in different ways. But like Meryl Streep's initial death scene, which there's a close up of her like head, like her head hits the, 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 the marble staircase and you see, yeah. you hear it and see it like, like twist sideways and, and crack. And then she ends up at the bottom of the stairs with all her limbs like broken. It's really disturbing, but I guess yeah. it's not bloody enough to make it a, an R. I don't know. I don't understand why. That's I think, point. I think because of the context of like, well, well, she's not really dead. And look, this is kind of cartoonish. It's like, well, still a, a, a live action human body all twisted up like that. Uh, yeah. Still pretty disturbing. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I, uh, I understand. I was really, really delighted by this movie because I like dark comedies. Um, I also like over the top type of type of stuff. And on the one hand, I very much understand why Robert Zemeckis would have been drawn to something like this because of his interest in visual effects and the visual effects, especially, you know, uh, Goldie Hawn spends a huge part of the second mo- second act of the movie just walking around with a hole directly through her stomach because she's been yeah. uh, shot with a shotgun. And some of the ways they do, like some of the things they do um, were really advanced that would have taken a lot of pre-planning to get it done. Um, not just seeing through her, but actually at one point Meryl Streep like leans down and looks through the hole and has like a line of dialogue through the hole in Goldie Hawn's stomach. Uh, again, dark, but uh, I understand that uh, Robert Zemeckis might have been drawn to the technological possibilities. But oh, one yeah. of my problems with Robert Zemeckis is that sometimes I feel like he trips over himself to try and be commercial, and this movie is so not commercial. I don't, I don't understand. Uh, it doesn't feel like Robert Zemeckis' movie in that way. The way that the camera moves and and. Uh, and the fluidity and, and, and scope and just moviness of it definitely feels Robert Zemeckis, but the way that it's, uh, yeah, intentionally upsetting. Um, it has, it's two main characters, really it's three main characters. If you count Bruce Willis are not likable, like none of them, yeah. none of them are good people. Uh, and so it has that sort of, uh, none of them is a good person. So it has sort of that satirical, uh, bent, uh, to it. It eventually does have, I think a little bit of, uh, uh, sort of off-camera heart when we when we learn by the end what happened to Bruce Willis's character yeah. outside of the movie. It's sort of like, okay, there's some heart there, but it still ends on a dark joke uh, of them Very, dying yeah. again. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, uh, I might, it might be, it's too soon to tell. It's obviously never, nothing's going to unseat Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But as far as Robert Zemeckis' movies go, this one might be in the top tier for me. You know, uh, watching old episodes of Siskel and Ebert has, is very um, instructive because especially when they're, when they're reviewing movies that I have seen and came out in my lifetime, uh, but being an adult and being tuned into the, into the film industry is something that I was not, you know, that I was too young for that um, at the time. And so when you watch a lot of their reviews of movies from like the late 80s, early 90s, one thing that really comes out is how big of a splash Tim Burton made. Mm. And specifically Beetlejuice. Like the number of times they re- they're talking about, you know, Death Becomes Her or what is it? Like Nothing But Trouble. And they've mentioned mm. a few others. And they'll say like, it is just such and such a studio trying to recapture that Beetlejuice tone. 
And I think death becomes mm-hmm. her, like the idea of that being a, uh, being seen as a mainstream film with these big stars, despite it being so dark, the way in which it is dark, kind of this weird fantasy darkness. Yeah. Uh, feel It's like, you can definitely see the studio being like, what do we have that is similar to Tim Burton uh, and Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, anyway, and, uh, before I throw it back to you, another reason I realized that I probably thought it was rated R is that uh, Isabella Rossellini is very nearly naked in every one of her scenes. <laughs> <laughs> I have not seen the film in so long. I don't think uh, I even remember that she was in it. Oh no. She's the, 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 like, I don't know what you want to call it. Witch doctor, the priestess yeah. or whatever, who gives them the, the potion that makes them, uh, but yeah, she basically just wears a big gaudy necklace. That's like the only <laughs> thing she's wearing. That's anything covering her. Uh, fantastic performance, by the way, uh, Isabel Rosalie. She's she's on that. We've talked about, and we should actually put together a formal list at some point. But actors who, if you see their name in the credits, you know there's at least one good scene in the movie. Yeah. Uh, Isabel Rosalini is on that on that list for me. No question about it. Um, okay, so next up for me is a film that came out several years ago, and I and it's one that I always meant to see but never did until now, and that is Martin McDonough's Seven Psychopaths, um, which. I love in Bruges. And then, as you know, I do not care for uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, seven psychopaths right in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there is a lot. I mean, it, it's the same with, with three billboards. There is good stuff in there and, and a great cast that's really committed to the characters that they're, that they're playing. And there are moments, there are really good moments, but it's a remarkably undisciplined film, which Seven Psychopaths is also undisciplined, but because it's not trying to be about something as vital and important as, as three billboards is um, it's lack of discipline is uh, a little bit endearing actually. Um, And there are moments where you can, you can see that Martin McDonough as a, as a writer is having a lot of fun and, the actors themselves are having a lot of fun. And you certainly, as the film is going, you don't expect these char- this, this film to have much of a heart. But as sometimes happens with a film like this, one or two of the actors who've been given a lot of like fun and goofy things to do, they actually find heart within their characters. Christopher Walken especially uh, takes this character that is in many ways walken-esque and he actually rather than play directly into it he plays against it and in doing so he finds tremendous depth to his character and then sam rockwell who is often at his most fun when he's being completely off kilter uh also plays this character that is so pathetic that you but he's his energy level is still very high and you really uh you really come to sort of relate to him. And so those two guys are sort of the heart of the film to the degree that there is one. And the rest of the cast is great. Well, you know, Woody Harrelson, always reliable. Tom Waits is in the film uh, and, and does a good job for the, the limited screen time he has. It's overall, it's, it's a movie that I enjoyed watching uh, and it, it's much more about sort of the creative process itself. And that is something that always interests me. 
but I'm not sure if you, I'm not sure if you would like it. I I feel like it'd be. No, a really I, good... I didn't. I didn't like. It. I reviewed oh, it I for for, oh, I, for, I forgot that you saw it. Okay. Yeah. Um, there is there are things that I really liked about it, um, but again, it it definitely it helped me to realize how much in Bruges is just like a fluke. And that when you have a writer director who is as un, who's as disorganized and undisciplined as Martin McDonough, you're going to get a movie like seven psychopaths, which the, that stuff is only excusable to the degree that it is um, because it's not trying to do anything too self-satisfied. Hmm. It is a little bit that. But I guess I guess I because I, I've never seen In Bruges, so uh, I guess I need to see it because I didn't like Seven Psychopaths and I didn't like Three Billboards. So maybe as long as his movies don't have a number in the title, then maybe they're good. But I I don't know. I haven't seen it. Uh, I prefer my uh, McDonough's John Michael. Sure, yeah, yeah. I like I like The Guard and I really really love uh, Calvary. I did not see War on Everyone, which I heard was terrible. So maybe I'll maybe i'll keep that one out and so i can don't yeah. i'm solely my experience with john michael mcdonough yeah it's uh in bruce one of the things that fascinates me is that like considering the films that came after in bruce is so shockingly focused like it does not have an ensemble i think that's a i think that's one of the things that trips him up it's really just about these two characters with a supporting role by Ray Fiennes, who's essentially the antagonist. And then they, they have like, there's a little like one and two scene characters, but it's mostly these guys. And uh, it's a really, it's a really good film with really great performances. And it's every, and based on that, because I think he was nominated for an Oscar for it based on that, like he clearly was able to, to get these really good casts and these performers who are excited to say this dialogue, but he's never, he's never delivered on the promise of in Bruges, in my opinion. Uh, all right. Next up, I watched the movie uh, that is coming to uh, streaming in about a week, a little over a week. Maybe I've been looking forward to uh, since I read about it a while ago. Uh, Abel Ferrara's newest film, Tommaso, uh, starring Willem Dafoe. Uh, once again, Abel Ferrara, Abel, Ferrara, Abel Ferrara and Willem Dafoe have worked, to get, worked together a number of times and are apparently good friends in real life. That is and comfort really comes across in Tommaso, which isn't a movie that's really about much. Willem Dafoe plays a Willem Dafoe type, an actor living in Rome. Again, this is the other movie I said, where they talk about how empty Rome is in the summer, uh, living at Rome in Rome with his much younger wife, uh, and their, uh, young, very young daughter. Um, and, uh, not the, I'm not a fan of, uh, movies about May December romances, and I yeah. think this movie uh, does a good job by, I think, repeatedly making the point that they are not well suited to one another uh, because you know uh, there's a, thirty-five years of difference in between them. Um, and at one point, he says, "Oh, so now I have two children," um, which I, is what I imagine it would always always be like to be a, a person in his 60s dating yeah. someone in the 20s. Um, anyway, um, but that's not the main thing. It's that's one of the things it's about. Really, the movie is just Willem Dafoe is a character named Tommaso, uh, an American uh, living in Rome, who is uh, preparing for a role. Um, that that that's coming up and also um there are many scenes at aa meetings because he's six years sober um 
and yeah, trying to get on the same page with his, with his wife. And so what I ended up sort of feeling the movie is about is a, a look at like non-traditional definitions of the word work. Cause this is a person who doesn't work in the sense that most people do. He doesn't go to a job every day. Um, he doesn't work with his hands. Um, uh, you know, he doesn't punch a clock as, as they say, but his preparation is work, but also his staying sober is work. And also his being a husband and a father is work. And so I've, I, I, I think I, I took the movie to be uh, a, a look at the different kinds of work that this person uh, is doing and subsequently the kind of work we all have to do to get through uh, our lives and, and make something of ourselves and our relationships. Um uh, Abel Ferrara has a reputation as a provocateur, and I will say, I will admit without spoilers that by the end, Abel Ferrara is going to Abel Ferrara. There's some stuff yeah. that happens. <laughs> yeah. But most of this movie is just very relaxed, very chatty. Um, but also, there are moments of tension. There's sus- suspicion of infidelity, and there's worrying about the safety of the child. There are moments of tension, but mostly the movie unfolds in like long dialogue scenes that some of I don't know. Um, well, I think a lot of, I read in uh, film comment, got a hope, I hope film comment comes back. I know they're essentially furloughed during uh, yeah. this and that breaks my heart. Cause I love film comment, but I remember reading in film comment, I think it was an interview with Willem Dafoe about how the screenplay kind of didn't exist and then came out of improvisation. So the movie itself isn't improvised, but it all came from, uh improvisation and that really comes across there's a scene of just um after an aa meeting we get to know and i think that my understanding is this is true of aa meetings in general is that people hang around outside afterwards and chat uh and then so they're hanging around and then there's a woman who's going home and, and he's like oh, i'll walk you home and there's just a long scene of them walking through a mostly empty room at night and just like talking about their lives and travel and like kind of just shooting the breeze and it's so natural and so perfect. Uh, and the movie is just filled with, with scenes like that. Um, uh, I really, really liked it. And Willem Dafoe is, uh, I would say another one of our, uh, I think he's one of the great living actors. Probably. I, I would agree. He's, he always finds a fresh way to play his characters. Uh, even when you go in unlike somebody like a, a Christopher Walken who will surprise you because they so often play their, this type. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Jeff Goldblum's another example. Um, Willem Dafoe, just when you think you have an idea of how he's probably going to play a certain character, you know, he turns in a performance like in, you know, the Florida project. And you're like, I, I feel like I've never seen this before. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah. He's, that- he's a, he's a treasure that came up in that film coming interview about how, how often because of his intensity and his look, he plays like out there characters, but also occasionally he's used in the exact opposite way to be like the only example of decency. And they mentioned Florida project and American psycho where yeah. he's like the everyman uh, detective. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, and then next up uh, a movie, and this is just something I've been meaning to watch for a while. Uh, because I'd heard good things when I missed it at Toronto in 2018. And it's a, it's a crime 
uh, ish movie called the standoff at Sparrow Creek. Okay. And I got to tell you, I hated it. I thought it was, it. it was just so dull. It has, it has a sort of reservoir dogs type of premise that except a much heavier one. Uh, it's somewhere in the Midwest. There's been a mass shooting and the members of a local like militia okay get together because they know that being who they are they're going to be under uh suspicion and they are like let's get together figure out what we're going to do how we're going to avoid you know the cops and the authorities coming and prying into us uh, into our work and so they're like stay at this like warehouse where one of them works which is where they meet and they're there all night and then of course the suspicion is to come like oh maybe one of us was involved in this and james badgedale plays uh the uh, an ex-cop and now uh um militia member who's sort of tasked with uh because he has an you know interrogation background tasked with finding out uh if if any which one of them was involved in this in this shooting I, again I, I feel like as i'm describing it it's not a bad premise but it's, right. it's it feels so full of itself it's so first featurey um it's macho in a way that i uh was constantly rolling my eyes at um even though it's got a really it's got a good cast it's got uh, a really good cast got chris mulkey yeah chris mulkey and uh uh brian garrity and uh is it dean what's his name uh gene jones gene jones yes yeah he's from, great uh, yeah uh, and he's great in this in this too but um i just uh, I, I my patience wore out with this sort of like self-serious heaviness of this movie very early on and the like tough guy speechifying and uh, i mean there's some nice i, I think the why i'm forgetting the director's name uh, do you have it called up in front of you there uh, uh, henry dunham henry dunham like uh he and, and the cinematographer have there are some nice scenes when they're not talking there's a there's a great scene where um a cop sort of shows up to check out the warehouse and they have to like go into lockdown and shut off all the lights. And so the only lights you get are a couple of flashlights and a street light that's coming in under the sort of like big sliding garage door of the warehouse. And so you've got like, you know, a little bit of light and these long shadows and it's actually a really cool sequence. And there are occasionally some really great images in the movie, but, um, they only happen when, uh, Henry Dunham, uh, uh, has the patience to let his character shut up uh, for a yeah. second. Mostly, it's just dumb, heavy, broy, uh, but like broy, but like thinks it's smart broy, like film oh, broy, sure. basically. Oh, sure. Uh, um, type of dialogue. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry. I'm afraid I hated it. You know, uh, this is not a thing I say lightly. But David, you're aware that every once in a while, there's an actor who continues to get work and has never worked for me. James Badgedale is one of those. Oh. Uh, I don't consider him, like, for whatever reason, either I feel like he's too bland or he's trying way too hard. It's one or the other. He never finds the right balance for me. Well, here's what it is. See, I, 
maybe have a different angle on this, okay. which is that I think James Badgedale is a very talented actor with either a terrible agent or terrible taste in roles. That's because entirely when, possible. Because uh, uh, when I first, I mean, I, I've, he's been in a lot of things, but what I really associate him with is the um, tragically short-lived AMC series Rubicon, which I don't think you right. watched. He's great on that. And so that's why whenever I see his name in something, I'm like, Ooh, James Badgedale. And then he always ends up being kind of just, yeah. It just, I feel like he has bad, either, either bad taste or a bad agent. Yeah. He, yeah. He could be one of those, one of those guys that his agents, at least as far as film goes, they just don't know what he is or what they have. Um, but, uh, okay. So next for me is a, a movie that uh, popped up on Netflix. It is Michael Showalter's the lovebirds. Okay. Which I thought was fine. Okay. <laughs> um, the two leads are the two leads are great. I'm I'm largely unfamiliar with uh, Issa Rae, but I do know Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, you, well, you know what you know what TV show she's on? <laughs> Was it Rubicon? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the two of them have tremendous chemistry. I like it a lot, and I also like that. You know, it's the film is very predictable in a lot of ways. It's about this couple that have been around that have been together for a little while and uh, they're just starting, they're growing apart and they're on their way to a dinner party and they basically break up um, in the, in the car. And it's a, it's a very sad moment and both the actors do a great job with those moments. Uh, And then suddenly they find themselves pulled into this very strange caper uh, in which they, they could be seen as the, the prime suspects in the death of, of somebody. And so they have to try to figure out, you know, solve the case themselves because they realize like, well, if we go to the cops, you know, they're going to take one look at us and uh, decide that we just did it. And I also like the way the, the film approaches cops uh, and investigators. And um, unfortunately, I can't quite like the, the film can't quite figure out what tone it wants to strike because on one hand, like as funny as both of these characters are like that argument that happens in, and the realization that happens in the car is pure drama. And, and they both play it in a very uh, realistic, straightforward way. And it works. It works as a drama, but then this outlandish stuff happens. And on one hand, they're, they're reconnecting to each other as a function of these circumstances, but also they, they're also having just these big over the top reactions as well. And so the film just by bringing in like comedy and action go together very well, action and drama go together really well. And drama and comedy can go together really well. Somehow, though, action, drama, and comedy, the three of them don't, in this case, don't mm. blend together very well. And it's not because of, it's not because of the, the performances. They're, all the performances are really good. Um, it just it feels like it is kind of at war with itself, like it's trying to do too much, and it winds up being not that satisfying. And, and I think when we did the... the um, summer movie preview and we were talking about the lovebirds. I think I, I mentioned that I thought it was trying to, it was probably trying to capture that game night quality Mm. game night has a very consistent tone throughout. 
where yes, they do have very real emotional stakes, but they never play into that so much that, um, that the comedy goes away. And in this, I think they do. And Mm. it it makes the film not, not super satisfying. Um, That's too bad. Um, I know you're not uh, a participant in film Twitter and probably all the better for it, but um, the critic uh, Sam Adams, uh, not the beer, the critic Sam Adams uh, tweeted without any judgment on the movie itself, but he said the lovebirds was not a good new Orleans movie. And so he asked, what are the best New Orleans movies of all time? Um, I feel like I feel like you and I probably would go to the same place first. Is that my first yeah. would probably say The Big Easy. Oh, OK. I which was is a say, really good movie. And then Down by Law, probably yeah, Down by Law. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, the um, early 90s Nicolas Cage, uh, Judge Reinhold movie Zandali. Have you ever yeah, seen no, that? Obviously, that's yeah. Uh, that's it. No, it actually is a good one. You've got Joe Pantoliano and drag. You can't go wrong with that. Sure. Uh, that's a, that's a fun movie. Undercover blues, I believe is a new Orleans film. Okay. I might be wrong about that, but another early nineties, uh, action comedy with, uh, uh, Dennis Quaid and, oh shoot. Kathleen Turner. Ah, anyway. Okay. Moving on. All right. Uh, these next two, uh, really go together. Um, and the first one, I don't know that you've seen it, but I would not be surprised if you saw it as a youth because it you seems like it might be, me. it would seem like it might be up your alley. And I saw a movie I've been meaning to see. Speaking of movies that came out when I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies and rated R. So a movie I've been meaning to see since 1995. Okay. I saw Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. I didn't see Demon Knight. I saw Bordello of Blood. Oh, okay. I did not Um, see Demon Knight, though. That's with William Sadler, right? William Sadler is the hero, um, and uh, Billy Zane is the villain. You've also got Jada Pinkett. This is a pre-Smith Jada Pinkett. Sure. Uh, Thomas Hayden Church, CCH Pounder, Dick Miller, Gary Farmer. Uh, That's great. That's a yeah, great it's, cast. It's a, it's a great cast. And um, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you've ever read uh, or heard that um, when it existed in script form, there was a time that the Tales from the Crypt people were considering uh, buying from dusk till dawn and producing that as oh. a tales from the crypt movie it would have been funny if they had that, because that would have worked like but also st- structurally i think demon knight's story is even though it came out the year before it's so from dusk till dawn hmm. uh basically um William Sadler's character is being chased by a supernatural bad guy, uh, played by Billy Zane. Um, he meets the, the sort of wino in this small, like New Mexico town, played by Dick Miller, who's like, "Yeah, I can take you to uh, a little flop house." And there's like a so a hotel slash sort of brothel that CCH Pounder uh, runs, where William Sadler's trying to hold like hole up for the night, and Billy Zane finds them there, and then through sort of some mystical mumbo jumbo. Uh, he's not able to come in, but he's surrounded by Billy Zane calls all these demons up out of the ground. And so it's basically a bunch of like uh, lovable low lives trapped together uh, in this uh, brothel while a bunch of demons are trying to get in to kill them yeah. the entire time. It's so right. yeah. it's, it's so from dust till dawn. Um, I'm trying to think who else uh, shows up. The another actor who shows up, uh, He's a character actor that I always recognize. I know what you know. We know him most from now nowadays is the gas station attendant in Cabin in the Woods. 
You know, talk about oh, the, him. Yeah, yeah. the the harbinger uh, guy, Tim DeHarn. Tim DeHarn. Yeah, he he shows up as a, like a diner owner um, in a couple of scenes. Um, so yeah, really fun cast. Uh, the The movie itself is kind of lame, but um, it's directed by Ernest Dickerson, uh, oh. who um, has had a longer career as a director than a cinematographer because he shot so many early Spike Lee movies. I always think of him as, as a cinematographer first. Yeah. And that very much comes across in Demon Knight. It's a very fun, cool looking movie with a lot of like, because the, the, uh, did I mention the brothel? Uh, I should have mentioned this is a converted church. So there's stained glass windows. So that's uh, like a lot of fun that he has sure. like blue and red lights coming in from, from the outside, uh, because they're coming through the windows. Um, uh, there's a, uh, a fantastic shot of, um, there's, it's, kind of sad i guess if the, if you took the movie seriously but there's a kid who gets sometimes the people get possessed and they get turned into de- demons and so there's a kid who gets turned into a demon and then of course they have to kill the kid they have to like blow up this kid mm-hmm. and so there's uh and so there's this shot of uh just like a smoky charred like uh, uh what am i uh, like a sneaker uh like Whew. landing on the ground outside the uh, after he's been blown through the window uh it's a very cool like sort of dutch angle type of slow-mo shot there's and the movies uh, that is also very from dust till dawn like yeah. the the kid is getting like attacked by vampires and then they blow the kid up and he basically like blows apart and yeah it's very yeah. uh very disturbing uh yeah um yeah so i read, I read uh, yeah so demon knight it's it's not great from what i've read since because i suddenly went down a uh inspired by this i went down a rabbit hole of the tales from the crypt movie like uh short-lived movie did you know there was a third one jewel from 1999 it barely got a release what was it called ritual ritual tales from the, ritual. Tales from oh, the crypt okay. ritual i'd okay. never even heard of it no um but uh so apparently among people who are fans uh this one is the highest regarded of the three um uh and then yeah the other the, the other little bits of trivia that i learned was that uh when they were in script stage both for dust dawn and the frighteners were movies that tales in the crypt were interested in producing they lost i guess uh, or or gave up both of those and those ended up both ended up becoming better movies than any of the tales from the crypt movies sure um but i feel like tales from the crypt Crypt's legacy could be much different than it is right now if from dust to dawn and the frighteners were tales from the crypt movies yeah could have been the uh, the blum house of its day um but yeah that's the but the other thing i forgot to mention is that the best part of demon knight is the intro and outro with the crypt keeper i love oh, the crypt sure. keeper and i <laughs> of course um, you do because you love those types of jokes uh, i love the type of types of jokes i love the tales from the crypt theme uh which actually yeah um generally like the, the tales and script thing doesn't ha- it come into the world of demon knight it's really just the beginning and end um and the beginning actually has an uncredited cameo by john lauriquette um but uh there is a part where a character whistles the tales from the crypt theme song in that's uh, funny in demon knight but what i didn't really because i hadn't watched tales from the crypt since i was a kid um and it it didn't read. I, did, I didn't realize as a kid how gay coded the crypt keeper is. Oh <laughs> like my. he oh is my. such a queen, right? In in that yeah. in in that like sense of the of the word, like yeah. 
it's not just the corny jokes that the like they're they're very much the kind of jokes that RuPaul makes on RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, uh, saying things like congratulations, uh, you know, when <laughs> people uh, win award win competitions on on Drag Race, uh, but also his just his sort of like high pitched like laugh and stuff. Everything is is coded as very queenish, and I kind of yeah. it made me like him even more. Yeah, he's very catty, the the crypt keeper. Yeah. Um, uh, okay. And then, oh, and then, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention Charles Fleischer. Speaking of voices, oh. uh, the voice of of Roger Rabbit also shows up uh, in Demon Knight. And then I watched an, another movie that has a similar title, but it's actually a very different movie. Uh, but from the same year, I watched 1995's Tales from the Hood. Oh, which I've heard great things about, actually. Uh, it's well, I'm I, I'm glad that I hadn't heard anything specific about it because I didn't realize what it was. I didn't realize it was an anthology or I guess yeah. more of a portmanteau film if you're being specific about different types of anthology films. And it's Clarence, uh, Clarence Williams III, whom I, yeah. an actor I love, but I know him most from Half-Baked, but uh, he's always a great presence, <laughs> um, uh, is... Uh, uh, what sort I'm looking for an undertaker and the three yeah. gangbangers show up uh, to get some drugs out of a coffin or something. And he uh, tells them stories about all the different like dead bodies. Uh, and each one of them is like a, a horror story that is, um, and I didn't like, I, I, I was, I was afraid this could go the route of like a leprechaun in the hood or something sure. like that, where it's sure. like, problematic you know full of stereotypes but no this is like a polemic like message movie in which each of these stories is a little like uh, uh allegory and a, and a and a message um about like the first one is about uh, it has uh wings hauser and um i'm forgetting the name uh, the michael massey is that the actor's name from the crow um as uh as uh, racist right, white cops who who uh, beat up and end up killing uh, the actor who played uh, who would go on to play George's only black coworker uh, at the Yankees. <laughs> Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah. I can't remember his. I don't Morgan, remember his name. Is but is is Morgan his name on sign? I can't remember his name. Um, but uh, he looks like Sugar Ray Leonard. That's uh, all. I know. Right, that's right. That's right. Um, and so. Uh, that's the first one. The second one, uh, which has David Allen Greer in it, um, is not about race uh, uh, at all. It's it's about um, uh, an abusive. David Allen Greer plays an abusive parent yeah. whom the child sees as a, an actual monster. Um, I'm missing. One. I'm trying to, because there's four of them. I'm trying to remember what the third one is. Um, uh, it's going to bug me. Um, shit. Oh, well, uh, and then the, the fourth one, uh, which is the most sort of, uh, I think, um, visually and effects wise, the most, uh, ambitious is about, uh, um, a, uh, again, a, a gangbanger who, uh, gets, uh, forced into this sort of like experimental new rehabilitation, like clockwork orange type of, uh, treatment, uh, medical treatment in which he is, he hallucinates the ghosts of every other, person he's ever killed uh which are uh, very pointed pointedly all also black people it's about yeah uh it's about him killing uh other people in his in his community um and uh i can't believe i'm drawing a blank on what the third one was yeah as as you look it up i will mention that oh the third one sorry uh corbin bernson who actually has top billing 
mm. uh, because this is 1995 in LA law, I guess. Sure. Um, uh, plays a, um, a very racist, like former KKK politician yeah. who has, uh, in a, uh, well, who you could describe as trolling has moved into a former plantation in his, uh, like plantation home and, and, and is, uh, like mounting his campaign from there uh and the actor who plays smiley uh in um uh do the right thing plays his campaign manager um but then the i I guess the the spirits of all the slaves who were uh, brutalized and and killed uh, on the plantation uh show up as little dolls and start uh uh, so it has a creep show type of like uh uh Corin Burnson versus a bunch of little animatronic or, or stop motion, uh, rather, uh, dolls. It's, yeah, it's the movie's like very on the nose, very broad, but, uh, not what I expected. And, uh, fun, definitely better than demon Knight. Uh, I feel like I cut you off. You're going to say something. It is. Yeah. Um, in the, uh, the documentary horror noir, uh, which was, uh, released on right. shutter, uh, they talk a lot about, uh, tales from the hood and it's, it's a very well-regarded film amongst like African-American film critics and film historians and stuff, because it's very much, I mean, obviously any movie, anybody can watch any movie, but like, this is very much a for us by us kind of situation. Um, and, and even as you're, as you're describing like the order in which things go, which is like, okay, so we have, of course, these, uh, the wings Hauser unsurprisingly playing a racist guy and then we've got <laughs> Corbin Burnson being like this politician and then they save the last one, which is like, yeah, and you know what? Maybe we're not doing ourselves a lot of favors either. Um, like, sort of, or at least this this uh, subset of yeah, uh, yeah. of members of the community, the 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 gangs, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so when I had heard that it was that well regarded, I, I I meant to see it, and then I believe that there is a second one that is now available, uh, on which came Netflix, out like on Netflix almost twenty years later. I haven't yeah. seen it, but. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, is it the same guy, uh, Roy Condoliff? Um, uh, I don't actually, I don't actually know, but uh, but yeah, yeah they twenty eighteen. Tr- They've been trying to make it for a Rusty while. Cundiff. Yeah, it's the same guy. Um, but uh, okay, so it's uh, uh, I've got one. Yeah, right? okay. I'm trying to think if there, was, there was, I felt like there was something else maybe that I was going to say about. Oh yeah, it um, it was a Universal Pictures release, um, mm-hmm. and it got. I was reminded of. Uh, a very similar sort of um, uh, race conscious message horror movie get out from a few years ago, realizing like, Oh, get out. Wasn't exactly the first uh, time yeah. that uh, universal uh, did this. So I guess, yeah. I guess good for them. Uh, okay. So uh, my last film is Andrew Patterson's the vast of night. All right. Um, which uh, I need to write my review for more than one lesson. That's how I saw it. Um, and I don't think I'm quite as over the moon about it as you are, but I did love it quite a bit. Um, I, it's, you know, I forget what movie you were talking. I think you were talking about, uh, was it the Arrow Creek one? And you just said like. Sparrow. Sparrow, Sparrow Creek. Sparrow Creek yeah. 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 That like, it felt very first film esque. Uh-huh. And this movie is Andrew Patterson's first feature length movie and on his first anything according to imdb it's literally the only credit he has he just came out of nowhere and made this movie and it's so it just and and last week i was talking about cop car and that you can see like okay there's a lot of cone brothers in here vast of night i don't really see a lot of 
anybody else. It has a real original quality to it. Well, except the op- the opening sequence is very Brian De Palma Snake Eyes. <laughs> sure. It's it's yeah. not all one take. Uh, yeah. Neither is Snake Eyes. Actually, there's a ton of hidden cuts in that, but it yeah. pretending to be all one all one take. But it has. The, the same general setup, but it's just the fact that instead of, you know, Nicholas Cage at the MGM Grand, it's this like dorky, uh, you know, uh, yeah. uh, radio uh, technology enthusiast in a 1950s high school basketball stadium. Yeah. Who is, gymnasium. who is seen as like a real man about town. And he's got a cigarette <laughs> hanging out of his mouth and all that. Uh, yeah. And Incidentally, that character's name is Everett Sloan, who is the name of an actor that uh, was in Citizen Kane and worked with Orson Welles pretty regularly, which, and including the radio broadcasts, such as War of the Worlds. Um, Okay. And uh, anyway, so, you know, it is a film that that is certainly uh, celebratory of, of, film history but not just that one thing that i that really struck me and i'm still working on it i watched the movie yesterday um is it's like okay so we're watching a movie that would seem to be a tv show about a radio host and just like the idea of like going further and further and further back into the the history of media um and celebrating all of it you know um, celebrating the type of stories that were told on television in this undeniably cinematic uh, uh, visualization, but also really celebrating like this movie is right up there with the conversation as far as the importance of sound. Like there are scenes where mm-hmm. characters are listening. There are scenes where the screen is completely black and it forces you to listen, um, not merely listen as uh, you know, as you're empathizing with the characters, but also listening as though you were listening to this guy's radio broadcast. It's like there, there's an entire performance. It's purely audio and it's a great performance. Amazing. Performance. I, I love it. The, yeah, the it, it got Billy. me. Yeah, it got me thinking about, obviously it's very early in the year for end of year type of stuff, but like how rarely, if ever a vocal only performance gets nominated for awards or, 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 yeah. or, or things like that. Obviously this is a movie that's not, uh, I think Andrew Patterson's next few movies might be uh, in the awards conversation. Sure. I feel like this is a movie that's going to have the reputation of something like a pie or a primer or a following, sure. like Absolutely. Uh, a movie that's sort of announced a new voice and hopefully Andrew Patterson stays cool and doesn't uh, make movies that are uh, increasingly less interesting to me, like those directors. Um, no, really, not, 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 not the primary guy. What's his name? Uh, Shane Kruth. Shane Kruth. Yeah, like, not him. He's um, still cool. Although increasingly frustrated because he's still cool. He uh, is not getting his, his films aren't being made, unfortunately. Right. But uh, no, it's, and I love all the performances. The two leads are, of course, wonderful. Um, I I do think that Jake Horowitz is a particular standout uh, because his character. Although you know what, Sierra McCormick's great too. Like they she both, is. they're just so they both have their uh, such a, a firm handle on their characters and understand that they are constantly looking into the future because they're not really thrilled with where they are right now. Um, and then there's a lot of posturing on the part of Everett. Um, but then there is on the part of Faye 
for the benefit of Everett. Uh, mm-hmm. There's and Sarah McCormick, I wish I should call it. She has a you know there are some like very long, complicated camera like moves in this uh, yeah. in this in this movie. But she has a a scene that's just like a nearly ten minute long take of just her at work. Yeah, uh, that's uh, and it's fascinating. It's not unlike the other one because there's also things with the camera like steady cams across the entire town and uh, yeah there's some big ones too but that's a very subtle like a more subtle one but still like it's just her sitting in a chair for nearly 10 minutes and she's great yeah and and just the idea because it is along with uh, embracing radio like also the idea that like her instinct when she needs to get somewhere is to run, even though Everett has access to a car. And he's like, what are you doing? And she goes, I just walk everywhere. I don't think about cars. It's so like the film is, is, is often quite funny while still uh, I'm engaged in these characters. I'm, I am riveted to the screen. I really want to know what's going on uh, along with Bruce Davis, who plays Billy Gail Cronauer, who plays, mm-hmm. um, I forget the name of the character, but the older woman towards yeah. the end, you know, she has to deliver this, this monologue. And on one hand, she's this grieving mother, but then she's also, she has to very conceivably be uh, a crazy person. Um, but that monologue is not, it's heartbreaking, yeah. but it's also the most like one of the most skin crawling parts of the movie. Like I, I knew what the movie, I knew the movie's premise was like sci-fi. I didn't realize how much of a like creepy movie it would be. And there were parts, cause I watched it alone late at night. And like, I remember during that part, like kind of just like looking around my living room because it just felt like my skin was crawling. And that's the other thing is because whether it be her or Billy on, on the phone, you're, Everything is That's Billy Eichner's other know. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Low ambition show. It was well, the first you know, draft. In, in quarantine, <laughs> he can't be on the street. He has to be on the phone. Um, but, uh, you know, everything is delivered, you know, in these long takes and with these hushed tones, it forces you to lean in and pay close attention. And I kept expecting there to be like a loud noise because like it's, it's, it's getting me, it's pulling me in so much that that this is what I've come to expect. I think the film is counting on that without actually delivering. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to suggest that's a disappointment, quite the opposite. Uh, it's, it is a very specific type of suspense, one that utilizes every single tool a filmmaker has. And the more I talk about it, I think I might love it as much as you do. <laughs> I really, uh, I still, I'm still thinking about it. I'm going to continue thinking about it. What a, what a self-assured, Mm-hmm. debut i mean it's it it really is amazing and uh i didn't know about the everett sloan uh little uh reference there but i did know do you know so the fictional town where it takes place cayuga new mexico cayuga was of rod serling's production company oh that's fun yeah yeah All right. and that's the thing is like there are little thing there are little moments like that that are just kind of fun if you know them yeah um but at the same time, it's not just, it's, it, 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 if you have an appreciation of older sci-fi, either on TV or in film or on radio, you will appreciate this. But I don't think you have to have that connection in order to like the movie. You know, the film isn't only a fun throwback, though it is undeniably that. Uh, it still, in my opinion, works on its own terms. Uh 
right, and then I, I'm going to end with a movie that we talked about like three horror movies in a row there. Okay. Um, but I'm going to end with a movie that is not in any way a horror movie, but a movie I've been meaning to see for a long time. Uh, Elaine May's A New Leaf from 1971, oh, starring Walter Matthau. Yeah, starring Walter Matthau and Elaine May. Um, and uh, the movie kind of sneaks up on you because it's like very it seems very slight and broad like walter Matthau's great as a rich guy who loses all his money and yeah. basically comes up with this uh kind of like uh uh ealing studios type of idea of of just finding a rich woman to marry to get all her money and then kill her that's his yeah. whole plan the entire movie that's his plan and so like literally up and i guess i guess i'm spoiling here that he doesn't kill her by the end but literally up until like three minutes before the movie is gonna the credits are gonna start rolling that's his plan yeah and we know because we've watched like we've seen the seeds of how he's actually starting to have feelings for this woman but it's not until this moment at the end when he looks at this bush it makes sense within the movie and then he uh, uh decides to not let her drown or whatever that uh suddenly I, this movie that was like fun but kind of like superficial and slight comedy it suddenly hit me how much groundwork was done with this relationship or the the not the relationship necessarily but the the character the walter Matthau's character and the uh humanizing with him was done so subtly that he didn't even realize it uh, uh until the end and i didn't either and i it was a movie that i was i watched before bed and then uh, i'm sure you were you're a night owl even more so than i am mm-hmm. Um, do you ever have the experience of watching a movie before bed and the movie is so good that you can't get to sleep? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I had at the end of a new leaf last night. Uh, as I was like, I'm gonna watch this fun comedy and then go to sleep. And then it was over. And I was like, man, that was great. Like just, yeah. I c- couldn't stop thinking about how, uh, how good it was, but it's, uh, yeah, it's good. It's uh, full of very funny stuff. Um, uh, Walter Matthau, who's so often I think of as playing like, schlubby every man and like the bad news bears and the odd couple is weirdly great as this uh super out of touch snob he it's it is interesting to see the way his he changed as an on-screen presence because like you go back and you watch stuff like i think it was in fail safe you watch stuff like um a face in the crowd and he was seen as as this very slick intelligent, not at all schlubby kind of guy, often uh, sort of a, this sophisticated urbanite. And then just time went on. And, and I think working maybe it with, was, maybe it was just bad news bears. Maybe that's just like, I imagine the odd couple probably, uh, is that before bad, that. bad news bears? Yes, what? I think so. Odd couple is, I think 68, 69. Oh, okay. So bears before this one even. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah this, this definitely fits more with what he was previously, um, than, uh, than what we think of him as now, you know, but, uh, yeah, and you've got right. a bunch of, a bunch of other great character actors show up. Doris Roberts, uh, shows oh, up yeah. Elaine Mays made, uh, Jack Weston is Elaine Mays, uh, um, attorney. Uh, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of fun. James fun Coco is in it. Oh yeah. James Coco is Walter Matthau's, uh, uncle. Uh, who hates him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I saw this film uh, in high school. My, my, uh, my mom said I would love it. Like once I started getting into older movies, she's like, oh, you should watch this. And I watched it and I did love it. I don't have much of a memory for it now. Uh, I have no doubt that were I to watch it now, I would probably love it even more. Yeah. Uh, and 
like going back to death becomes her there is some dark comedy uh in it because he's planning to kill her whole time there's a part in their honeymoon after they get married where he's researching poisons into how to kill her not realizing that she's almost about to die an accidental death right behind him <laughs> falling off a cliff it's very very dark and very funny uh-huh. 